0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn
1: more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
0: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... The passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, well, it would be a historic moment in our nation.
2: There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to
1: vote in this country.
0: But a lot has changed regarding federal voting rights, and we know states have passed their own related measures. Well, longtime voting rights activist Gregory Moore talks about modern-day battles against voter suppression laws, and the battles he adds are deeply embedded in our nation's history. We'll talk to him about that. Also, where exactly is the nation's housing market headed? Well, specifically to the Atlanta region. Are you interested in buying a home? Are you trying to sell your house? Well, we'll check in with an economist from the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. Those conversations coming up. But first this, rarely do we begin with sports, but some big news out of Georgia Tech. At this hour, reports are head football coach Jeff Collins, as well as Georgia Tech athletic director Todd Stansberry, are no longer in their position. Speculation has been brewing since yesterday after it was announced a special meeting was called. This after Tech lost to University of Central Florida 27-10 to on Saturday. Now from the AJC, both Collins and Stansberry were reportedly told by Georgia Tech Institute President Angel Cabrera of their dismissals today. In other news, as Tropical Storm Ian approaches the southeast, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is ordering emergency services to prepare for possible impact. Emily Woo Pearson has the governor's plan.
1: The National Weather Service shows Tropical Storm Ian will strengthen into a hurricane. And as its path is still unknown, Governor Kemp is preparing for possible severe storm damage across Georgia. He's activating the State Operations Center, a collaboration of local, state, and federal agencies, including Georgia Emergency Management and the Homeland Security Agency, to monitor the storm. The governor says he does not want to leave anything to chance and urges those in the state to be prepared for severe weather and damage. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News.
0: Abortion rights is an issue Georgians say they care about, but it is not the most pressing topic for voters this midterm election. That will be the economy, as we hear from Susanna Capaluto. The majority of Georgia voters polled by Mammoth University say the state's six-week abortion ban is too strict. But when it comes to the biggest issues facing the country, only 14 percent said abortion. A recent University of Georgia AJC poll had similar results, showing just 5 percent listed abortion as their top issue. But nearly half of respondents said they'd support a candidate who believes in access to abortion. Amongst Democrats, that number jumped to 90 percent. The Associated Press reports Republicans say the November elections will be fought on the economy and President Biden's standing with the public, while Democrats believe anger over the loss of abortion access will make their voters more motivated this fall. Susanna Capilouto. W.A.B.E. News. Atlanta leaders and community activists are celebrating the city's purchase of the former site of the Chattahoochee Brick Company. The factory used brutal labor practices in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Now, the city plans to memorialize the people who suffered there, as we hear from Molly Samuel.
1: The Chattahoochee Brick Company used forced convict labor to make the bricks that built Atlanta roads and homes. For years, activists have worked to stop plans for industrial developments at the property, advocating for a memorial to the victims of the convict leasing system to be built here instead. Now that's going to happen. I'm full of joy this morning. Donna Stevens is the founder of the Chattahoochee Brick Company Descendants Coalition. She spoke at a community event at the site over the weekend. I didn't. No, if this would ever occur. There's no factory here now, though there are still bricks scattered around from a more recent facility. This property had been on its way to being developed into a fuel shipping terminal, but community members like Stevens pushed for years to stop those plants. Speaking at the event, Mayor Andre Dickens acknowledged it took some twists and turns to get to this point. But he said he's happy to be the son of a city that can acknowledge an ugly and painful history and keep moving forward.
2: When we talk about one city with one bright future, uh, that means overcoming the dark spaces, the dark past, the places that don't reflect the future we want to have.
1: There's still a lot of work to do on the polluted property, as City Councilman Dustin Hillis pointed out. He represents the area and has backed the years-long effort to protect the space.
3: So wipe your brows and breathe that sigh of relief, but no, we must get back to working together, planning for our future space, for memorializing a sad and vicious past.
1: Eventually, the plan is for there to be a park here, along with the memorial. Next month, the city is holding a community meeting about work to clean up the property. Molly Samuel, WABE News.
0: Georgia scientists are tracking manatees off the coast in an effort to better understand and protect them as we head to Savannah and hear from Emily
1: Jones. When Georgia's coastal water gets warmer in the spring and summer, manatees come up from Florida. But that can be risky in busy places like the Savannah River, where the port and other industries generate a lot of ship traffic. One manatee a year dies from boat strikes there on average. So this year, scientists attached trackers to two manatees in the Savannah River. Georgia wildlife biologist Clay George says manatees often congregate near fresh water.
2: If there are sites like that in the Savannah River that we can identify, we might be able to work with the industry to, to mitigate those sites in some way and you know, get the manatees out of harm's way.
1: The researchers hope to tag more savannah manatees next year. You can follow the current tagged manatees online at cmaquarium.org. Emily Jones, WABE News, Savannah.
0: And finally, welcome to the White House.
2: And that's why I'm honored to host the uh, 2021 Braves who are here at the White House. Fellas, congratulations. Mr. Chairman, the floor is yours.
0: President Joe Biden welcomed the Atlanta Braves as the team was honored for their World Series championship today. Now, Terry McGurk is chairman and CEO of Braves Holdings, LLC. He talked about the team's unexpected run to the championship last season, and he added this. A little aside, we still think we had a special
3: angel looking over us, having our recently passed friend, Hank Aaron, pulling the strings from on high. There's no question Hank was a part of what we did and he'd have been there every step of the way with us if he was here.
0: Now, might the Braves make another championship run? Well, we shall see. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment.
2: Support for WABE comes from... The Community
0: Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Let's stop, revisit a moment in our nation.
2: There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution
1: is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong,
2: deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country.
0: That is then President Lyndon B. Johnson on March 16, 1965, addressing a joint session of Congress about passing the voting rights legislation. Now President Johnson would sign the Voting Rights Act into law on August 6, 1965. Many thought this legislation similarly would outlaw decades of discriminatory voting practices, mostly coming from southern states post the Civil War. And if you're wondering what those practices included, well, poll taxes, basically charging a fee to vote, and literacy tests as a prerequisite to voting. There have been changes to the Voting Rights Act, including the Supreme Court striking down a key provision back in 2013. We'll get to that in a moment. But, of course, there's a. this is a major political year as midterm elections are taking place and as well as statewide contests. And, yes, there are concerns. And, yes, a lot has changed regarding federal voting rights and states have passed related measures. In a new book. Longtime voting rights activist Gregory Moore talks about modern day battles against voter suppression laws, and he ties those battles to the nation's history of grappling with voting rights. The book is titled Beyond the Voting Rights Act, The Untold Story of the Struggle to Reform America's Voter Registration Laws. Gregory Moore joins me now. He's on the road. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
2: No, thank you for having me.
0: Let's begin here by going back to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. In terms of provisions, there have been some drastic changes, or as some is called, a gutting of the Civil Rights Act. From your viewpoint, Mr. Moore, is there much protection left in this federal legislation?
2: Well, there is. Thank you for for having me. And there is a number of protections that are left. The Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act basically outlaws discrimination in voting. And this has been a longstanding uh, tool that the civil rights community has used to protect us in these times when uh, states or local jurisdictions have tried to enact legislation uh, that would dilute voting strength of people of color. Mm -hmm. What we lost in the Shelby decision was the ability for us to pre-clear those, or for states or local jurisdictions to pre-clear those provisions before they became into law and that's what's really been taken away and that has led to this basic uh level of voting discrimination that has been proliferating across the country in the last few years.
0: And in that 2013 ruling, that you know, some, depending on when you ask, someone say, well, we no longer needed states like Georgia and I think Alabama to to go through this because times have changed and and there wasn't a need for it. And then others will say, well, no, exactly there was a need for it. Now, after, of course, it was changed. And now we have all these issues with some states. Uh, through your lens, the gutting, uh, as some put it, the gutting uh, of the vote, Rights Act, particularly back to 2013. If you say there are still provisions left, then why are we seeing so many concerns about what states, including Georgia, are doing with new laws that have been passed?
2: Well, one of the things that happened when they got rid of or when the Supreme Court ruled in the Shelby decision to uh, get rid of uh, or get rid of the Section 4 and Section 5, basically, it took away that tool of pre-clearing some of these provisions Mm -hmm. before they became law. So as a result, Uh, Civil rights litigators have to go and litigate section by section, Mm -hmm. case by case, which takes years in the courts, rather than stopping it at the gate before it happened. Several thousand laws have stopped, were stopped from being enacted in the law because of the full strength of the Voting Rights Act. But since 2013, we've seen state after state look no further than Georgia Mm -hmm. has taken this on. Texas, Mississippi, North Carolina, it's just been a proliferation particularly in these last two years since the 2020 election.
0: In your book, you take the reader through a timeline of voter reform movements and what you call, quote, historic advances that were achieved amidst fierce opposition in Washington and in state legislatures across the U.S. But it seems now that for voting rights activists, they feel like they are still up against fierce opposition. Maybe not necessarily Washington, but some might point to, obviously, the previous administration, but definitely fierce opposition as they see it in some state legislatures, including Georgia. Let me ask you this, Mr. Moore. What does reform look like then in terms of overall voting rights? Is it something that can be detailed in just one simple federal legislation? Or will we just have, again, more lawsuits, depending on which side you're on of this?
2: Well, we'll never get through all the lawsuits before people would have lost the right to vote over and over again. So Mm -hmm. there are a couple bills I'd like to point out. One is Mm -hmm. the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Amendment Act, that was an uh, effort that we've been trying to get past since 2014, mm-hmm. when the Supreme Court first made their decision. There's also been other bills like the Freedom to Vote Act, which is trying to tie the issues of the overall uh, dilution of black votes and, and and the influence of money in politics. But even the Electoral Count Act, which is a very narrow, narrowly defined bill that would stop from happening in 2024, 25, what happened in 2021 when we had the issue of the um, the miscalculation or the misunderstanding of the role that the Electoral College plays uh, in choosing the president. Mm-hmm. All those types of bills that are pending now in Congress are stalled because of the filibuster. But I do want to point one thing out, Rose. We had the same problem in the 1990s when we were trying to pass the National Voter Registration Act. Mm-hmm. That bill was filibustered over four times and it was vetoed once by a former president, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. But we overcame those filibusters. We overcame those those uh, opposition from the Republicans. In fact, Republicans were one of the leading sponsors of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So we're calling on them to come to their census, look at their own history, and realize that they were a central part of the voting rights uh, bills, both not just in 1965, but the reauthorizations in 1970, 75, 82, 92, and 2006 in the bill signed by President George W. Bush. All of these have been bipartisan efforts on the part of Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act and the National Voter Registration Act and the Help America Vote Act. And this is the only period we've had in the modern history where there's not been bipartisan support and there's been hyperpartisan politics that's driven this whole debate.
0: Why do you think that is now? Is it a fair assessment to say this has also been fueled by since Donald Trump was president and then also the election deniers in terms of the results of 2020 or even absolutely. back for go ahead
2: no absolutely I didn't want to cut you up absolutely okay. it's the polarization of the electorate it's basically the sense that people have forgotten the basic core of our democracy we survived all of these years because we were able to have elections in this country and the winner and the losers accept the results and move forward this is the first time in our nation's history that we've had this concentrated effort of people to doubt or deny the election results. So whether it's the work that we've been doing around reforming the laws or even the, the courts and the battles in the courts, we are really in a protracted struggle to just get back to the starting point of our democracy. So we really need to have people come to their senses, get rid of the hyperpartisan politics, and just put in place a system like we had before the Voting Rights Act was overturned, that lets one person, one vote, and there'd be no barriers to voting. We've advocated for years for same-day voter registration, but even without that, the restoration of the Voting Rights Act will solve and resolve a lot of these issues if we can just get that bill passed out of Congress.
0: While well, you all, folks like you, advocates who are, quote, waiting for folks to come to their senses, in the meantime, what are you seeing in terms of grassroots organizations, if it if it really is about, and I keep hearing this, it's got to take the will of lawmakers. And you and I both know that could take a long time. And oh, yeah. So while you all wait for that, what are you seeing on the ground? Are you optimistic that there can be some type of I don't know, collaboration in terms, at least just educating people, making sure folks know what the laws are so they are not caught up or unfairly, Disenfranchise or intentionally disenfranchise when it comes to even registering to vote, and that that varies from state to state.
2: That's right, but that's why we have this new initiative led by Martin Luther King III, the Drum Major Coalition. I just which talked to him
0: and his wife last week.
2: <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you did, and he has been really looking at this the right way, taking uh, taking the efforts of all of our groups, including my own group, the Promise of Democracy. The Promise of Democracy Foundation, we're working to bring all of our groups together to bring resources to the table and to help do voter registration, voter education. So people understand the rules and the laws that do exist. And when there are new laws that have been written, we want to be able to explain that to them. But that leadership on the part of the King family and on the part of the civil rights organizations and the work that's been done by Stacey Abrams over the years. All of that work really is collaborative and needs to continue in order for us to bring us to a, a level playing field for the election in 2022. So we have a few weeks left for voter registration. I urge everybody to get registered, renew your registration if you haven't. But at the same time, look to see how you can help bring more light and energy to this fight for the right to vote and particularly calling for the pass of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You uh, mentioned. While we still have time.
0: You mentioned in the past how there was a bipartisan effort. Well, listen, folks listening say, well, look, we want everyone, regardless of their political party affiliation, afforded the right to vote Whether Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, whatever, progressive, centrist, whatever you want to call yourself. So how do you then convince people that this is not a partisan effort because you want more Democrats to vote and you want more people to vote for Democrats? How do you do that?
2: Well, making it easier to vote for everybody makes it easier to vote for everybody. When we take off the barriers, when you get rid of things that make it harder for people of color to vote or low-income people to vote or young people to vote because they move often uh, or because they don't have a permanent address, these are the kinds of things that remove people from the voting list. But I admire just the role that Georgia has played in this whole struggle, whether it's the work that we've been doing around this uh, drum major coalition or the work that Dr. King has done, of course, uh, John Lewis John, uh, Julian Bond with the NAACP all of these historical organizations and institutions have really kept on the battlefield and we are almost there I think we've made more progress than people give us credit for but if we can just take the hyper partisan politics out of it not use this issue as a way to turn out the vote but mm-hmm. use it of a way to expand the vote so that if you're a Republican or Democrat you don't want your vote to be not counted. You want your vote counted and you don't want to be accused of having to you know, steal an election. Those things don't happen when the laws are standard, when there are no uh, basic uh, barriers to voting and when people have a fair chance uh, to express their vote at the ballot box in early voting or on election day and then every vote is counted.
0: You mentioned Georgia, but of course with Georgia's new laws, look, even with drop boxes, with Georgia's new law, we're looking at hundreds, I think uh, over 325-some drop boxes that were previously available, no longer available throughout the state. That That's a big issue, particularly when you look at in Georgia where you have some very populous counties such as Gwinnett, DeCab, Cobb, and Fulton. And, and advocates have said, you know, that is directly tied to you, to, to someone, having their their vote suppressed because if you limit the number of those drop boxes and then perhaps folks can't get to the drop box, you then are limiting and then you haven't really given a explanation. You say, well, there's at least when I say you, I'm talking about, you know, our government here. Well, there's at least one drop box in every county. Well, for a county like Fulton or or DeKalb, you know, you need more than just one and there are more than one, but throughout the state you're talking about 300 plus drop boxes that will no longer be available. Thank you. That's
2: that's absolutely right. My state of Ohio, for instance, you only get one drop box per county. So counties with 10,000 people get the same drop box as counties with over a million people. And so that's the disparity and the barriers I'm talking about. You've said it very well yourself. So we have to do more to show these kind of barriers that continue to exist and begin to put together Remedies at the state level, but state legislators are very important roles too. It's not just we have to elect a Congress that's mm-hmm. going to support voting rights, but we have to elect a state legislature that's going to support voting rights, and a governor who's going to support voting rights, and a secretary of state that's going to support voting rights. These are very crucial positions in this year, and there are other issues on the table, as you know, the, you know, the right to choose, the mm-hmm. education issues, the, the funding for education, and the health disparities. That violence, all these things are going to be on the ballot in the fall, but we really need people to step up. And, you know, I, I left out one key person, even Jimmy Carter, from the very beginning of his presidency, uh, pushed for Election Day registration. So this is not a radical idea. Mm-hmm. It's something that's been out there for a long time. And the work that the Carter Center's done, the work that the drum major coalition is doing, all this is moving us closer toward a democracy that's more fair and, and, and basically balanced. But we have to get out of the hyper-partisan politics mode if we're going to get this resolved in time for our next presidential election.
0: And in your book, you talk about, particularly you also spend a lot of time talking about efforts as it relates to, especially it, when Bill Clinton was was president and leading up to his election. And you talk about the efforts and the strides that were made. And then, of course, as you just mentioned earlier, through your lens, the decline of the movement based on, like, for example, 2013, if Again, you're waiting for this bipartisan effort to come around. Until then, and I want you to be very specific, what can you all do? If you can't get the legislation at the federal level and you're having challenges with GOP-led states, folks listening may say, well, we're just sort of in this still just kind of stagnant mode.
2: What can you do? The best remedy we can uh, put outside of litigation and legislation, is to have a massive turnout of voters at the polls who basically deny the, room, de- deny the falsehoods that our elections are not fair. There's a lot of work that go in to get elections to come off mm-hmm. properly, and that work goes on. But we have to get partisanship out of that process. And so if you want to volunteer to be a poll worker, we need your help there. But having the long lines go on forever and having people left out of the polling place is really not a good idea. We need to keep fighting it past the legislature and turn out the vote in large numbers.
0: I want to get your thoughts on this because we had a conversation with the Brennan Center not too long ago out of New York talking about these election deniers and efforts through a PAC that were seemingly coordinating a nationwide effort. Mobilizing people to staff election offices, recruit poll watchers and poll workers, and as they see it, build teams of local citizens to challenge voter rolls, question postal workers, as they put it, be ever-present in local election offices, and also just request documents. Seemingly, in other words, just trying to be disruptors before an election, before results are even... You know, Tally, what do you make of that? That that's also something that groups like yours are up against.
2: Well, that's what I mean by the hyperpartisan politics coming into election administration. We have laws on the books to administer elections. Those are standard bipartisan laws. The reason we have to pass bipartisan legislation, because it's implemented on a bipartisan basis. So we don't want to pass laws with just one party and then say both parties got to implement it, because we went through that in the 1990s mm-hmm. when people... Republicans still fought the National Voter Registration Act, even years after it passed. It took us six years to pass it, and we spent three years fighting in court to get states to implement it. So we want to get states to implement these laws, but the way to do that is to get them passed on a bipartisan basis. I know I'm sound like a broken record here, no. but it, but 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 we don't want to put our election administrators in danger. Of people accusing them of somehow gumming up the system. We don't need these partisans coming into these elections, like you said, and making it very difficult for us uh, to get the votes counted. And so we don't need that work. We need to have laws and restrictions against that type of activity.
0: Mr. Moore, as we wrap up, what concerns you as we head into this very important time in our nation again, midterm elections come November?
2: My biggest concern is the apathy that people may have about uh, whether or not they can do anything about this, these problems, and basically the the fear that people have that the election is not going to be uh, undertaken fairly. We have to get that fear out of people, remind them who we are, remind them of our history, remind them of the work of Dr. King and the civil rights leaders of old, and the work that remains to be done is for us to take advantage of those laws and to move forward with protecting those laws and knowing that every vote does count. It doesn't matter who you are, your vote is the same as anybody else, whether you're a multi-billionaire or someone who lives on the street, you have the right to vote and you can continue to join this battle. I would urge you, if you wanna hear more about this work, uh, promiseofdemocracy.org is my website, Mm -hmm. but there are several other efforts and read the book and you'll see a lot about our history that is saying that this is not new, this has been going on for decades.
0: Mm Speaking of which, Mr. Moore, you've done this for a long time. You've been in this space for a long time. How optimistic are you that we will get to a place in our lifetime in this nation where maybe you and I and other folks, we don't even have to have this conversation regardless of one's party affiliation. that We're not even having this conversation that everyone within the law (laughs) has a right to register and vote and without any barriers.
2: Life would be so much better if we didn't have to have this fight every year. And I believe we're ready to have an election about the election and about the issues and not about the voting system. The voting system needs to be off the table in 2024. We need to all have standard laws. And I'm optimistic that if we come together now in 2022 and 2023, we can avoid a disaster in 2024, but we have to take advantage of every opportunity. And I'm looking forward to saving our democracy in my lifetime and yours.
0: It always comes back to democracy the book is beyond the voting rights act the untold story of the struggle to reform america's voter registration laws gergie moore is the author thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it
2: thank you so much for having me i appreciate that thank you
0: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Roe Scott. A few months ago, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell testified before Congress. Now, he's been giving regularly updates on the state of the economy to lawmakers. Now, here's an exchange between Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, who asked Powell about the housing market.
2: What we're seeing now is that uh, with rising interest rates, obviously new investments uh, are more expensive. Uh, we've seen housing starts fall by 14 percent in May. So that means fewer housing opportunities, less supply, uh, fewer workers um, engaged in building new homes. So if you could just use that as a sort of case study of how you're going to navigate these cross-currents. So interest-sensitive spending is a a very important aspect of how our tools work. And in the case of uh, the housing market, what you're seeing is higher mortgage rates. So you're actually seeing demand move down quite significantly. Uh, uh, Many, many indicators suggest that fewer people are visiting homes. The wait time for uh, selling a home is increasing. Housing housing sales are moving down. Housing starts are moving down. And uh, overall, uh, it's a a slowing in the housing market. And um, I I think what you will see, or many forecasts call, uh, for the increase in housing prices to slow pretty significantly now.
0: Well, we shall see. Now, that was back in June of this year, and as I always say, depending on whom you ask, the answer varies in terms of where exactly is the nation's housing market headed, and in particularly, that includes the Atlanta region. Well, we'll get some insight from Dominic Purviant. He's a Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta subject matter expert in residential real estate, and he also manages the bank's Home Ownership Affordability Monitor. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it.
3: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I need a house. Where can I move to?
3: <laughs> well, it's a—it's uh, it's certainly. I want challenging. a yard
0: for a very big, large, goofy dog. Okay, uh, I want to be near a park. I want to be near all the major grocery stores. Mm-hmm. I want to be close to Marta. I want to be near the Beltline. Yeah, there uh, you go. <laughs>
3: but that—that's a pretty robust list, and I think you pretty much want every what everyone else wants, um, and you can have it. You just have to. Pay for
0: it. Let's back up a little bit. You yeah. heard uh, Chairman Powell talk about, well, this was three months ago. He said, well, I understand this. Because those mortgage rates are so high, you know, maybe demand is, is dropping. We still seeing that?
3: Well, so I'll, I'll talk nationally and then kind of talk mm-hmm. locally what we're seeing in Atlanta. Um, before I begin, just one caveat that my views don't necessarily represent sure. the views of the Federal Reserve. Um, so w- with that in mind, um, so nationally, we are seeing a pretty good uh pretty sharp contraction in demand. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the percentage of people who think it's a good time to buy, I mean, it's it's at cycle lows. Mm -hmm. And so today, there are a lot of people who are seeing home prices go up. They're seeing interest rates rise pretty rapidly. They're electing to sit on the sidelines. And so if you look at national home sales, they're down about 20% in the most recent numbers. Um, if you look at mortgage originations, whether it's purchase mortgages, purchase mortgages are down about 20 percent, refi mortgages are down about 80 percent. Um, most people, most economists, either uh, at the National Realtors Association as well mm-hmm. as the National Home Builders Association, are characterizing what we're seeing currently in housing as a recession. Um, now, the rest of the economy is, is still some questions whether or not we're there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, housing has seen a, a a pretty consistent and persistent drop in demand since the beginning of the year when when rates started to rise.
0: When economists talk about metrics they're looking at in terms of inflation and whether or not we'll head into a recession, they look at labor, mm-hmm. and then they also look at some key industries or sectors. And of course, you know, we talk about big purchases; housing is right up there. So, with the Fed raising interest rates, they want to control, if you will, the the behavior of the consumer, and obviously. Right. high interest rates you're not gonna buy a home so for folks like you and you're looking at that but there's also such a need for housing in general right one would argue well perhaps that's a good thing but we're also we're 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 creating a barrier a hindrance for a particular sector of our population who maybe they feel like now's a good time to buy because maybe they've been saving their money through the pandemic i don't know but now you've got these high interest rates so it's you know you're damned if you do damned if you don't
3: yeah it's pretty tough uh the the Federal Reserve has very blunt instruments to deal with things like inflation, and so in in the rooms I'm in, I always make the argument because I'm I'm a housing guy, mm-hmm. so I always talk about the impact on housing um, when rates go up. But the Fed is primarily focused on inflation, and we sort of have a limited amount of tools that we can use to deal with inflation. One is interest rates, and yes, it does have an impact on housing. Um, But if you look at the cost in other sectors of the economy, um, those continue to rise. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is the demand is much higher than than current our ability to supply. And the only thing that we have, you know, we can't do much on the supply side Mm -hmm. to deal with the supply chain disruptions and things that are still having to work out from the pandemic. What we can do is control demand, and so that's where our uh, interest rate policy is coming in.
0: When you're looking at Atlanta or this region, are you using a different set of tools than market tools that, that you look at, that you assess? how the, Because you all even said Atlanta is officially unaffordable. <laughs>
3: right, right.
0: So based on our – so we we
3: have a uh, a tool that we create in our shop called the Home Ownership Affordability Monitor, mm-hmm. and basically we – measure how affordable a market is to the median income household based on the, the current median price house. And so, um, if anything, if a the median income household is spending greater than 30% of its income on housing, then housing is considered unaffordable. And Atlanta, relatively speaking, has been a very affordable market. Um, it's one of the reasons why people want to move here. And Affor-
0: wait, wait you said Atlanta Atlanta has recently been a very affordable has historically, historically. been <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> and very affordable
3: uh, and that's in terms of if you just look at the median price for a house in Atlanta versus mm-hmm. New York and New Jersey where a lot of people are moving from Atlanta's relatively cheaper but also just the share of income people used to be able to come to Atlanta and spend you know less than 30 percent of their income on housing. That's changed even prior to the rise in rates, mm-hmm. just the increase in home prices overall has made Atlanta unaffordable and so today, the median income household is spending about forty one percent of their income just to afford a house mm-hmm. to afford a house and remember the threshold is thirty percent right
0: so it's great for those folks who are coming from Seattle or San Francisco or right. New York or where have you. Miami, my yeah. goodness, I have a friend in Miami who's yeah. like, Rose, I'm about to put a tent up on the beach. Yeah. That's great for them, yeah. but then for folks who live here.
3: Yeah, that that's part of the problem. Right. So what happened during the pandemic is if you are in New York, you had a whole lot of equity in your house and you were you were paying higher taxes and, and you wanted to sort of get out of New York from the issues – related to the pandemic you could sell your house in New York and move to Atlanta and either pay cash for a house or pay well above the asking price and so if you're moving to Atlanta and you have, you have, you're coming with a whole lot of cash and equity mm-hmm. Atlanta looks relatively affordable Yeah. but if you actually live here mm-hmm. and you're, you're making the median income for the region it's not as affordable for you and so that's been the tension
0: How did we get here? How did Atlanta get here? I've been asking this question to a whole lot of people. Just did an interview with Dana McGluck over from Georgia State Urban Studies the Professor, who says, you know, there's a whole lot of optics around. You can look at uh, some policy issues. I'm not asking you to be the the policy person no. here, but because you're just looking at the stats and the numbers. But through your lens, how did we get here? Beyond policy, is it just because of new development coming in? Is because all these folks from New York and San Francisco and Seattle are coming in and saying, "Hey, we can afford to to purchase something four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, all of the above."
3: If I had to uh, point out one thing, it's the it's the overall lack of supply. That's not just in Atlanta, but just nationally. And there's two types of housing supply. So there's existing supply, people that own a house that put their house on the market, and there's new construction. Mm-hmm. And what's happened, and this is prior to the pandemic, but this sort of accelerated through the pandemic, so many people have refinanced their mortgages and locked it in at a low rate. Mm-hmm. And so if you refi your refinance your mortgage, you lowered your mortgage payment. It's sort of a disincentive for you now to put your house to the market. And so if you look nationally, on average, um the uh, the average homeowner has a mortgage that ha- that has an interest rate of less than 4%. Mm-hmm. And so now rates are up over 6%, and so there's no reason for you to ever sell. And so if there's fewer people selling, there's less inventory available. Sure. And then during the pandemic, you had interest rates drop um, to, in some cases, below 3%. Mm-hmm. That led to a spike in demand. And so you have the combination- And now it's doubled. The interest rate is doubled. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you have a combination of limited supply and increase in demand that creates that upward pressure on price. Which seems
0: when you think about it, because we're in this global pandemic and and, and I was floored because we did sub subjects on this, and I was floored that the housing industry was staying so stable, if yeah. not skyrocketing during the pandemic. So now you're telling me, Mr. real estate expert as you are, that I should have bought in the pandemic. So what you telling me?
3: Well, if you bought during the pandemic, you could have locked in a yeah. mortgage at a very low rate. Yeah. And so a lot of people who bought or refinanced are, are there. They have a, a mortgage with is three point five percent. Now mortgages now interest rates is are at over six percent and it's like there's mm-hmm. no way that I'm gonna sell. And then on the so that's just the existing home side. So yeah. on the new home side, um what's happened is during the pandemic there was a spike in demand for for both existing and new construction, we just couldn't deliver homes fast enough mm-hmm. and so because of supply chain issues. And so builders passed on their- And it their, took some time for right. some
0: workers, for workers to come back because right. there was a little bit of a stoppage, not a big stoppage, right. but a little bit of a stoppage in, in so, building.
3: Yeah, so the, there was the labor issues, there was material cost issues. You know, Famously, lumber increased almost three or four times Um, And so all of that increased cost was passed on to the consumer. The consumer could afford to pay it because, of course, interest rates were low. Mm -hmm. And so you had all of those things working together, a spike in demand, some constraints on supply, created a situation where in Atlanta, in the past two years, home prices have increased over 50%. So if you go back to where we were July of 2020, Mm -hmm. the median home price was about Around two hundred and sixty or $270,000. Mm-hmm. Today it's 400 and, oh, 405 $406,000 on the median. Yeah. What? In just two years. Oh. And man. so that is just, first of all, it's unsustainable. Yeah. You know, that level of. <laughs> well. So people who have benefited from increased appreciation. You should of, see
0: this email. That's crazy, yeah. Rose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah. So, and that's 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 now if you have that level of increase in home prices, and then you tack on, you know, three hundred basis point increase in interest rates, mm-hmm. that just that just leads a a a pretty sharp contraction in demand, and that's what we're seeing now. And the the benefit, I think, in Atlanta, Atlanta is doing a little bit better than other markets across the country. We still having we still have relatively stable demand. Um, um, we we haven't seen uh, prices and in, in inventory. Uh, we haven't seen inventory increase as much as on the markets. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen prices drop uh, that much as as we're seeing in like Boise and Austin and other other markets across the country. But Atlanta typically lags the rest of the nation, and so it's it's highly likely that the slowdown in activity that we're currently seeing in other markets will eventually find its way here.
0: You say highly likely, but yeah. when <laughs> is it 2023, 2024? It, it, any idea like when? When? Well- Because if economists like yourself and, and, and folks like you are looking to what happens this last quarter of this year in terms of consumer spending and whether or not we go into this recession, and again, economists can't even agree on that. I won't yeah. even ask you about that, yeah. but- w- what? What do you look for? What are those indicators that you look for to see when Atlanta hits that, that slowdown?
3: It's, it's the level of supply. Remember, if the upward pressure on price was caused by a limited supply, downward pressure on price is going to be caused uh, by an increase of supply. Mm-hmm. And so right now, Atlanta still has a supply shortage. Um, we still have about a two-month supply of inventory, and inventory is that has, for all or just new builds? That's existing existing inventory. Existing. New new inventory is a little bit higher mm-hmm. typically, but um, inventory levels have to get above four before we see some significant slowdown in, in the rate of appreciation. because so we have ha- some some we it will get there just based on where demand is, but it will take some time.
0: Because I feel like no matter what neighborhood you go through, you turn a corner, there's a crane, there's something big going up on the Beltline. I'm going to yeah. ask you about the Beltline right. because that has been, depending. again I love saying this, depending on who you ask, the Beltline is a factor in terms of Atlanta's current housing crisis. Sure. It's one of those mm-hmm. for some people. Um, how do you see something like this? Uh, there's a major development that impacts the entire city, not just the development in one neighborhood in on the west side or east Atlanta. You're talking about a development or project that's enveloping the entire city. In housing prices in all around this twenty-two mile loop, yeah. Well, just what are your thoughts on it and what it, what it's become, what it's becoming, as it relates housing?
3: So um, this is
0: your lens through your viewpoint. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I actually live within walking distance of the Beltline. It's so. your fault, Dominic.
0: <laughs>
3: You're the reason. So <laughs> I, it the Beltline transformed the city of Atlanta. Okay. Um, it it created a high, highly desirable amenity for people who wanted to move in town. Mm-hmm. And it caused demand for in-town living to spike.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: However, demand for in-town living is has increased across the country. Like, people want to live in town. And I think, um, if anything, the Beltline sort of accelerated the... the um, the demand to live close by in those neighborhoods that are close by to the Beltline have seen pretty sharp increase in demand and upward pressure on price. Um, but that's a trend that's sort of a national trend. People want to live in town. Mm-hmm. You give them a, an amenity, a park, um, something like the Beltline. Oh, it's it's fabulous. It, yeah.
0: it's absolutely yeah extraordinary. Yeah. You know, full disclosure, I'm am th- not that far from the Beltline. Yeah. I mean, I love it too. I, I, don't blame me. So yeah, I love it. But the development that is coming on board and you look at, and then there are, I want to be fair too, there are efforts to make sure there is, quote, affordable housing somewhere around that. And I want to ask you this because it's fair. Everybody else gets this question. What does affordable housing look like to you? What does that mean?
3: Well, so I've mainly focused on housing affordability. I know. And there's a difference. Mm -hmm. And so it is very, very difficult to build affordable housing in today's market. So when I talked to builders, this was prior to the pandemic. They were telling me that, so back when I first came to Atlanta, the majority of new home construction in Atlanta was less than $250,000. Today, the majority is above $300,000, simply because you cannot build a new house for less than300,000 dollars almost mm-hmm. anywhere in Atlanta simply because of, of cost. The, the cost of construction is so high that it's difficult to build. You know if you're just talking about purchase for, for homes for purchase, mm-hmm. you just can't deliver the product. And so it's, it's extremely difficult without some sort of subsidy uh, to deliver that product for, for people.
0: I have a listener that says, please ask about the years of Atlanta building, quote, luxury market homes and apartments. Has that also been a an issue? I don't know if I should call it a problem. I'll get emails, but has that been yeah, part well, of the issue? Well, part issue? of
3: the issue with the, the, the reason why most apartment construction you see is what we call Class A or, mm-hmm. or more expensive apartments is because you can't build Class B or Class C apartments and make a profit, just because of how much it costs. And so if you're going to build an apartment, just based on cost, you only could build Class A apartments. Mm -hmm. And they're always going to be more expensive. And the way you create more affordable apartments is you have people, uh, you sort of have the older, older products sort of Mm -hmm. become, take the place of, um, become more affordable over time. But you can't, you simply can't deliver very affordable cheap whether it's for sale or for rent product, and that's what de- and
0: that's what developers will say yeah well then you know for years we hear well as long as there's for some on that side they'll say well we can maybe do 15 percent right in terms of what's considered affordable housing but then 15 percent of whatever affordable housing that changes
3: yeah via
0: location yeah you know that right as we're going to wrap up then dominic where do you think we'll be if I'm asking you the same question a year from now, I say, look, Dominic, I had you last year. We were talking about Atlanta's housing market, its trend. You know, what's it look like? What do you think your analysis would be?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. I have to come back next year. <laughs> um, I uh, and, and, and don't play this because just in case I'm wrong. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I, trust me. <laughs>
3: no, I, I think we're in for a um, considerable contraction in the housing market. Both nationally and eventually locally. Um, Most economists are calling for somewhere around a 10% decline in home Mm -hmm. prices from the peak. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with that or not, Mm -hmm. but I do think at the very least, you know, last year in Atlanta, home prices were up 20%. We're not going to see 20% increases in home prices Mm -hmm. moving forward. At the very least, it'll be in the single digits, if not. Um, some submarkets may see a, a decline in prices simply because, you know, we, um, we're we seeing demand drop at, at such a level. And people putting their house on, houses on the market today, they're having to cut prices in order to generate activity. And so once you start to see that, that means it's a sort of precursor for a significant slowdown in housing.
0: And no, And no longer you then think for those who are looking to buy, will they have to battle with someone else who's offering ten and twenty and thirty thousand dollars above the asking price we've I've heard stories of folks yeah. that look I you know I took my little letter in there and they were like ha 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 yeah, got yeah. this over here
3: yeah yeah so we're seeing so let's see if you were selling your home a year ago you were having like you know maybe ten offers twenty offers. Now it's down to like two offers. and Yeah, the good old days are yeah, gone. And, but in some sellers. cases, you would have to lower your price in order yeah. to get, to generate sales. So we're not seeing that as much anymore, for sure. From the
0: Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Dominic Privyant, subject matter expert, residential real estate. He also manages the bank's home ownership affordability monitor. Thank you so much for coming in and taking time. I really appreciate it. We're, we're going to have you back.
3: Thank you. I look forward to it.
0: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as you always do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
3: Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL
0: Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.